Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In the 1968 case of Sherbert versus Verner, the Supreme Court said that this woman, Adele Sherbert, must be exempt from the generally applicable terms of South Carolina's unemployment compensation program. And that program effectively required people to be available to work on Saturdays. But because she was a Seventh-day Adventist, she observed Sabbath on Saturdays and she wasn't available to work. She was fired for not coming into work on Saturday, and then she was denied unemployment benefits for not being available to work on Saturday. So the court then laid out this test. They said if the government is going to substantially burden someone's free exercise of religion, and they did do that here by denying her this benefit, effectively taxing her for her religious belief, the court says, then the government's going to have to show that they have a compelling interest and that they're pursuing that interest in the least restrictive way. If there's some other way they could accomplish the same goal without burdening someone's religion, then they should do that. Now, fast forward 22 years. The court has a case with a really similar factual record. Two men are fired from their jobs for something they do as part of their religion. They apply for unemployment benefits, and the state denies their application, again because of something that they do as part of their religion. The twist in that case, though, is that the religious practice involves ingesting a federally banned hallucinogenic drug called peyote, and they're fired from their jobs as drug rehab counselors. And here's what Justice Scalia said in his opinion announcement for the 1990 case of Oregon versus Smith. 1213 is Employment Division, Department of Human Resources of Oregon versus Smith. Uh, that case is here on certiorari to the Supreme Court of Oregon. Its procedural background is complex. Suffice it to say that the issue currently before us is whether Oregon's criminal law against the use of certain mind-altering drugs, including peyote, can constitutionally be applied to the respondent's sacramental use of peyote in ceremonies of the Native American Church. The Oregon Supreme Court held that because of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, it could not. We reversed that judgment. The First Amendment prevents the government from, quote, prohibiting the free exercise of religion, close quote. Our cases establish that this prevents the government from penalizing adherence to a religious position or the profession of a religious belief. It also prevents the government from penalizing an action only because that action is taken for religious reasons or only because of the religious beliefs that action displays. But respondents seek to carry the meaning of prohibiting the free exercise of religion one large step further. They contend that a religious motivation for engaging in legally prohibited action or for failing to take legally required action places the citizen beyond the reach of a law that is not specifically directed at his religious practice and that is conceitedly constitutional as applied to others. We reject that interpretation. It no more prohibits the free exercise of religion to compel, for example, the payment of a general tax by those who believe support of organized government to be sinful, then it abridges freedom of the press to compel payment of a tax as a condition to a newspaper staying in business. Respondents' contention that our precedent requires a religious practice exemption to generally applicable laws is mistaken. 
A long line of our decisions has held that an individual's religious beliefs do not exclude him from compliance with an otherwise valid law prohibiting conduct that the state is free to regulate. For example, laws prohibiting polygamy, laws regulating the use of child labor, laws requiring individuals to perform military service, and laws compelling individuals to pay taxes. After Oregon versus Smith, then the Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment's free exercise clause was that it prohibited the government from penalizing adherence to a religious position or the profession of a religious belief, and it prohibited the government from penalizing actions because the action is motivated by religious beliefs or because the religious beliefs the action communicates. But if the government passes a general law neutral with respect to religion, not aimed or targeted at religion, but the law prohibits certain conduct, then the First Amendment provides no exemption from this otherwise generally applicable law. Such an exemption, as Scalia wrote in his opinion, would be to make the religious adherent a law unto himself. The legislature, though, according to Scalia, can provide religious exemptions to generally applicable laws. You could actually write that into statutes. The federal government has traditionally done so by granting conscientious objector status to people who don't want to be in combat roles or to carry weapons or to kill in defense of the country. If Oregon wants to do so here, give some kind of exemption in terms of how it administers its unemployment benefit, then that's fine too, Scalia says. The Constitution doesn't require it, but it is a possibility that you could do through legislation. And that's the key takeaway from this case of Oregon versus Smith. The politics of religious freedom were a lot different in 1990 than they are today. The conservatives on the Supreme Court joined Scalia in his opinion, and the court's liberals dissented. They saw exemptions as a way to protect the rights of minority religious communities, in this case, the Native American church. There was enough pushback to the decision that Congress three years later took up and passed a federal law that required a return to the judicial exemptions we saw in Sherbert versus Verner. That law was first proposed by New York Congressman Chuck Schumer, now the 70-year-old Senate Majority Leader, but then a 43-year-old veteran member of the House of Representatives. Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy proposed a companion bill in the Senate. The final version of the bill easily passed a voice vote in the House and then passed 97-3 to in the Senate, with only three Southerners in opposition. With President Clinton's signature, the bill became law in 1993, and it said this, at the beginning of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, you have the findings. It says, Congress finds that the framers of the Constitution, recognizing free exercise of religion as an unalienable right, secured its protection in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress finds that laws neutral toward religion may burden religious exercise as surely as any law intended to interfere with religious exercise. Congress finds that governments should not substantially burden religious exercise without compelling justification. And then Congress also finds that in Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court virtually eliminated the requirement that the government justify burdens on religious exercise imposed by laws neutral toward religion, and that the compelling interest test as set forth in prior federal court rulings is a workable test for striking sensible balances between religious liberty and competing prior governmental interests. And so the purposes of the bill, according to the text, are to restore the compelling interest test as set forth in Sherbert versus Verner, and to guarantee its application in all cases where free exercise of religion is substantially burdened. And then the actual provisions in general, the law says, government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability, except as provided in subsection B. And subsection B says, 
government may substantially burden a person's exercise of religion only if it demonstrates that application of the burden to the person is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. Then the bill provides for judicial relief. Standing to assert a claim or defense under this section shall be governed by the general rules of standing under Article 3 of the Constitution. I think it's fair to say that this bill has become more controversial over time. We'll talk about those contemporary controversies on Thursday. First, though, an important constitutional question. What authority did Congress have to pass this law in the first place? Can Congress tell the Supreme Court how it should interpret the First Amendment when religious liberty cases come before it? Who ultimately is responsible for saying what the Constitution means? Those questions are at the heart of this case that comes up in 1997 called City of Bernie versus Flores. Bernie's a little town outside of San Antonio, and the Catholic archbishop there wanted to expand the parish church in Bernie. Zoning authorities, though, had the church in a historic preservation district. Law wouldn't allow for this new construction. So the archbishop said, wait, what about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Before telling us we can't expand our building, the government should have to demonstrate it has a compelling interest, and it's going about the task of historic preservation in a way that is the least restrictive of our religious free exercise. When the case gets to the Supreme Court, the important question is whether Congress has the authority to tell the Supreme Court how to interpret the First Amendment's free exercise clause in the first place. Congress says yes, we can enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment, and through incorporation, that amendment applies the free exercise clause to the states. And to that, the court says, hold up. You can enforce the 14th Amendment, but you have to enforce our interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And our interpretation in Oregon versus Smith is no religious exemptions. So after this case, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act applies to federal law. The federal government can make rules for how its own laws are going to be enforced, but not to state law which is why we've seen RIFRA statutes pop up at the state level and become increasingly controversial over time. Here's what Justice Kennedy said in Bernie. The complaint contained various claims, but, but to this point, the litigation has centered on the constitutionality of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Um, the act is abbreviated RFRA, and then you supply a vial to pronounce it RIFRA. The church claims that because of the protection afforded to it by RIFRA, it is exempt from the zoning restrictions. The district court found RIFRA unconstitutional. Uh, the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit reversed, and we now reverse the Court of Appeals. Congress enacted RIFRA in direct response to our decision in Employment Division versus Smith. In Smith, we held that a neutral, generally applicable law, consistent with the Free Exercise Clause, need not be justified by a compelling governmental interest, even if it substantially burdened the religious practice. RIFRA sought to alter that rule. RIFRA requires that all laws, whether federal or state, must be justified by a compelling governmental interest and employ the least restrictive means of furthering that interest whenever it substantially burdens a religious practice. Our federal government is one of enumerated powers. Congress relied on its 14th Amendment enforcement power in enacting the most far-reaching and substantial of RIFRA's provisions, those which impose its requirements on states and local governments. The question posed by this case is whether RIFRA enforces the free exercise clause as interpreted by Smith. Congress's power under Section 5 extends only to enforcing the 14th Amendment. Legislation which deters or remedies constitutional violations can fall within the sweep of Congress's enforcement power. However, Congress does not have the power to decree the substance of the 14th Amendment's restrictions on the states. 
This back and forth between the Supreme Court and Congress in the 1990s left things so that the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act applies only to federal law. Some states now have their own RIFRA statutes that apply to state law. But the politics of religious freedom look very different today than in the 90s. And so on Thursday this week, we'll talk about some of our recent statutory, not constitutional, disputes about religious freedom and federal law.